Continuing on our theme of comorbidities and HIV, uh, our next speaker uh, is uh, Dr. Jamie Locke, a transplant surgeon from the University of Alabama, Birmingham. As you can see, she's the chief of the Division of Transplantation. Uh, she can count Dr. Sag as one of her ardent fans. I should mention that. And she's going to talk today about uh, renal disease and kidney transplant. Dr. Locke. Well, tremendous. Thank you for that introduction, and it's really an honor to be here. Um, we are obviously required to have disclosures, but I think the most appropriate disclosure for me, as mentioned, is that I am a surgeon. I am not an infectious disease physician, nor am I a nephrologist, and so that means that I am not always right, but I am always sure. Um, so... <laughs> Our learning objectives today, I thought I would spend a little bit of time talking about acute kidney injury in people living with HIV as well as chronic kidney disease, sort of brief overviews. They'll be more on the slide than what I discussed just for time constraints, but should be in your packet. And also because those are two things that you all probably see quite a bit and take care of. And then I'll end with the topic that is near and dear to my heart that I've been involved in since the mid-2000s, and that's the role for kidney transplantation among people living with HIV. So let's start uh, with acute kidney injury. So if you look at risk factors and common etiologies, we know that um, folks at greatest risk who have HIV for developing acute kidney injury are our male patients, patients who have CD4 counts less than 200, viral loads over 10,000, they happen to be co-infected with hep C. And the most common etiologies are things like pre-renal, so infections are quite common, including things like opportunistic infections, and also intrinsic, which accounts for about 46%. Uh, we often see ischemic ATN and also related to some of the nephrotoxic medications that they take. And we see acute in kidney injury in these patients, both in the ambulatory and hospital settings. And in the ambulatory settings, a prospective cohort study looked at this, um, again, uh, defining acute renal failure as an increase in serum creatinine, and they categorized their etiologies as prerenal, intrinsic, and obstructive. And they noted 111 episodes in only 71 subjects for an incidence rate of about 5.9 per person years. When you look at hospitalized patients, we know that acute kidney injury is a strong predictor of hospital mortality in the general population, but it's also a strong predictor in HIV patients. And we know that HIV-positive patients who are hospitalized have an increased risk of acute kidney injury of about 2.8-fold, and that this uh, also increases their risk for in-hospital mortality upwards of almost threefold. Um, and you can see that patients with HIV who had acute kidney injury had a much higher in-hospital mortality, um, about 5.8, and you can see 27% versus 4.5%. Um, and so this is a significant problem for the patients that we care for. Other studies have looked as well at the hospital setting. This is a study using VA data, um, and they found that even mild acute kidney injury was associated with a significant increased risk uh, for developing end-stage renal disease and ultimately death, and that those who developed acute kidney injury and did not recover uh, to their baseline renal function had the worst outcomes. <clears throat> so trying to understand what causes um, uh, 
account for acute kidney injury and HIV is very important because obviously if we could avoid it, we could avoid the increased morbidity and mortality associated with this. Um, I like to think, put this in three buckets, thinking about pre-renal causes, um, intrinsic renal injury, and post-renal causes, and we'll go a few, over a few of those now. When we think pre-renal, uh, this is the most common etiology. It can be often seen uh, from hypovolemia due to GI losses. There can be poor oral fluid intake, um, adrenal insufficiency, or hyper, uh, hypoaldosteronism, sepsis from uh, various infectious sources, um, congestive heart failure, and for our patients who also suffer from cirrhosis or uh, end-stage liver issues. If we look at intrinsic causes, um, when you look at ATN, um, it can uh, be related to hypoperfusion injury or an ischemic injury from low blood pressure. Um, this also obviously falls in the prerenal category in that instance. But if you look at ATN, the most common cause is actually related to medications that the patient is on. Um, you see this with things like NSAIDs, amphotericin B that's used to treat certain infections, um, pentamidine, sidofovir, and fosconate, um, as well as aminoglycosides. I think it's also important to note that you can see acute interstitial nephritis with certain common medications um, like Bactrim that's also often used to either treat or prophylax against PCP. We use that routinely in the transplant uh, setting as well as things like rifampin and beta-lactam antibiotics. If you look at parenchymal infections, uh, we often can see fungal infections or fungal balls in the kidney, as well as granuloma formation from uh, tuberculosis, CMV, EBV, and BK also uh, all cause an interstitial nephritis. Then there are the glomerular diseases. The one that we're probably all most familiar with and I'll spend a little more talking, time talking about is HIV-associated nephropathy, but you can also have HIV-associated immune complex GN. Uh, you can see thrombotic microangiopathy, amyloid, hep C co-infection, which presents as like an MPGN, and non-HIV-associated renal disease. So our patients are living longer, and many will develop hypertension and diabetes and develop renal disease just like the general uninfected population. If we look at HIV-associated nephropathy, we know it was first described in 1984 as a series of uh, patients with advanced AIDS. And it almost exclusively uh, was found in African Americans, about 90%, or those of mixed ethnicity. Um, and we know that it's the third leading cause of end-stage renal disease among African Americans between the ages of 20 and 64. Um, HIVAN typically presents with rapid progressive renal failure. Um, you see moderate uh, nephrotic range proteinuria. Um, they can have some urinary sediment. Um, enlarged echogenic kidneys are often observed on renal ultrasound. Um, and they can progress to end-stage renal disease rather rapidly. Um, and uh, it can obviously result in death. It's typically been associated uh, with end-stage AIDS, AIDS, but there are reports of HIVAN uh, with seroconversion um, or, in some patients, actually asymptomatic HIV infection. The diagnosis um, can be complex and complicated, but uh, typically um, we like, on our end, uh, to have a renal biopsy. Um, if you look at the pathology, you will see patterns of focal segmental glomerular sclerosis on light microscopy, um, and you often see global sclerosis of affected glomeruli. Um, you can also see podocyte hypertrophy and hyperplasia. 
um, as well as visceral epithelial cells can form these pseudocrescents. You also see tubular atrophy, uh, simplification and microcytic changes, and proteinaceous casts. Um, and then you can even see an inflammatory interstitial inf infiltrate of lymphocytes, plasma cells, and monocytes. And why did I spend a lot of time telling you all about this is because this is one of our most vexing problems post-transplant when we get a biopsy for renal dysfunction and we're trying to tell the difference between HIVAN and an antibody-mediated process or some um, rejection-type process, and it is often very challenging and the treatment options are very different. So these are just some pictures to show you what this looks like. Um, so on the left-hand side of the screen is what a sclerotic glomeruli looks like, and on the right-hand side of the screen is what a cast might look like in your tubular cells. And this is an electron microscopy. The thickened area there is showing you a normal basement membrane. And then um, to the right side of your screen, those are actually podocytes, and uh, the one closest to the top of the screen right here is actually effaced, and so you will see podocyte effacement, and this is why they actually spill protein, um, because that becomes quite leaky, um, and that's uh, very problematic for these patients. So first question, which of the following is an effective treatment for HIVAN? A, prednisone, B, heart, or C, ACE inhibitor, or D, all of the above? Great. Um, so all of the above, actually, we've used all of these things um, um, can be quite effective. So if you look at the treatment, as I mentioned, here are the three options. So heart therapy, um, we know that the incidence of HIVAN and HIVAN-related ESRD has declined since antiretroviral therapy was introduced. Um, and in a retrospective study of 42 patients with biopsy-proven HIVAN, ART use uh, delayed progression to end-stage renal disease, so that's very important. And similar results were found in a study of 36 patients from Johns Hopkins. Um, in this perspective, a cohort study uh, for these patients in Baltimore, um, heart use was estimated to reduce the risk for HIVAN by 60%. Um, and uh, obviously, it's an indication to start antiretroviral therapy. But interestingly and importantly, ACE inhibitors are also quite useful in the setting of HIVAN. Um, and it relates to sort of um, the proteinuria. Um, we tend to use these medications in diabetic nephropathy as well. And so the mechanism of action is quite similar. Um, unfortunately, no randomized controlled trials exist. Um, and usage has been extrapolated from other proteinuric kidney diseases. Um, but in a series of 22 patients with HIVAN, um, Fosfenopril was used, and it was associated with preservation of renal function at 12 weeks and improvement of proteinuria compared with untreated patients. And so we might not be able to completely eliminate their proteinuria, but if we can control it, we know that we can decrease the damage and they may be able to get better longevity out of the kidneys that they already have, or ultimately if they go on to need a kidney transplant, they may actually be able to get better longevity out of that transplant as well. 
Um, and I think ACE usage is likely beneficial in this patient population. You do have to monitor these patients for increases in their serum creatinine and hyperkalemia when you introduce it. And if you introduce it in the post-transplant setting, um, it should not be introduced until the patient is at least three months out from their transplant. Um, and I think this uh, graph really um, demonstrates well that both kidney and patient survival have been shown to be improved uh, with the use of ACE inhibitors in the setting of HIVAN. And you can see on the left, um, looking at kidney graph survival and on the right, patient. And those who were treated did much better. Prednisone, again, there's no randomized controlled uh, data to be able to present to you. It is a standard uh, in our treatment for FSGS. It may uh, actually diminish the inflammatory infiltrate that we see on high van biopsies. Majority of the data are uh, case series. Uh, I do think it's important to note that while it may ameliorate um, the kidney dysfunction, um, it has been uh, seen uh, to be associated with increased risks for infection, and so that you just need to be able to balance uh, those two things. But importantly, while I spent a lot of time uh, talking about HIVAN, I think that it's really important as providers for HIV patients that we understand that not all renal disease in HIV is HIVAN. Um, they can present with a number of different diseases. Um, in this particular study uh, of 89 HIV patients with a renal biopsy, 50% actually had a diagnosis other than HIVAN. I think it's also important to note that patients who have renal disease secondary to something other than HIVAN actually have better renal outcomes, but they, um, and so that's important to note. But again, I think it's really important to understand that not all renal disease is driven by HIVAN, and how we take care of our patients uh, very much uh, is dependent on the underlying disease process that they have. And in terms of acute kidney injury, I think the last uh, category is post-renal, and so when you think of post-renal, we often think of obstruction, and obstruction can be both intrarenal and extrarenal. Um, when we think of intrarenal obstructions, we think of uh, drug precipitation in the formation of crystals in the tubules, and this can be associated with particular medications, particular indenivir, um, and I uh, will show you a picture of that. We often see this in the transplant setting when we use foscarnate for gancyclovir-resistant CMV, so it's something that we do see. Um, and risk factors certainly are these medications in combination with things like hypovolemia um, and hypoalbuminemia. If you look at extrarenal causes, um, certainly um, many of these medications are associated with nephrolithiasis as well. There can also be retroperitoneal fibrosis, pelvic lymphadenopathy, and uh, the dreaded uh, fungal balls that we occasionally do see. And just to give you a sense, um, this is what an indenivir crystal looks like that can be seen on uh, biopsy. So fairly impressive, and it's clear why that creates obstruction. Well, acute kidney injury is not the only issue that we face with our patients. Uh, many of these patients also develop and go on to develop chronic kidney disease. We know that CKD is an important complication of HIV infection and treatment. Um, as patients live longer and HIV spreads among populations uh, at high risk for renal disease, particularly our African-American population, it's expected that the number of patients uh, with HIV and ESRD will increase in the coming years. Um, we know that uh, starting patients and um, maintaining them on ART and ART compliance is associated with decreased HIVAN related to ESRD. 
but we also know that art can be nephrotoxic itself. It also can lead to cardiovascular-related uh, issues and metabolic uh, dysfunction that ultimately can cause kidney disease as well. Um, and I think it's important to highlight that although only a small percentage of patients may progress to ESRD, proteinuria has been shown in upwards of 30% of our HIV patients, um, indicating widespread uh, occult kidney injury. And I think this is a really important concept when we start to think about the concept of transplantation and whether or not HIV individuals should be able to serve as living donors. We know that CKD negatively affects delivery of HIV care, and in a retrospective observational study from the VA, 9% um, of those patients had CKD stage 3 or higher, um, and we know that their exposure to uh, heart was 14 to 49% less as their GFR declined, and 15% of the patients never had their art therapy adjusted for their renal dysfunction. And we know that underexposure and inappropriate dosing um, is not good in general. And in this particular study, it was associated with a 35% excess uh, mortality. Um, and this was supported in a, a separate cohort as well. So what about HIV and ESRD? Um, I think as many in this room will know that mortality rates among HIV patients who had ESRD were very high early on. Uh, but with the introduction of art therapy, that has declined significantly. Um, but what we do know is that uh, despite everything that we have done, we do know that um, higher mortality rates are observed among patients with HIV on dialysis compared to their uninfected counterparts. And we know that the highest dialysis mortality is actually observed among patients who are co-infected with hepatitis C. And so that really begs the question of what can we do? Because certainly if we leave these patients on dialysis, we know that they will die at a much higher rate than their uninfected population. And can we offer them kidney transplantation? And I think as most in this room would agree, we certainly can. Um, and the first indication of that came out of Peter Stock's work um, that I had the privilege of participating in the first NIH trial in 2010 that demonstrated good outcomes, at least in the short term, among HIV-positive individuals undergoing kidney transplantation compared to uninfected. It's important to understand that HIV patients that undergo transplant are a very selected group of patients. So they cannot have a viral load, so they have to have a negative viral load, they have to have a CD4 count greater than 200, and no evidence of any opportunistic infections. Since Peter's work, we've gone on to look at our outcomes in our HIV patients, and we've been able to demonstrate that not only have the outcomes been in good in the short term, but the outcomes have also been quite good in the long term. And this study uh, looked at a number of years out and demonstrated that mono-infected HIV uh, patients had outcomes that were similar uh, to their matched HIV-negative counterfactuals. And this graph is showing you both patient and uh, graph survival. When we looked, however, at our co-infected uh, patient population, we found that their outcomes were not quite as good as the HIV uninfected population. And we tried as best as possible to compare apples to apples, so we actually matched them to individuals who were hep C positive but HIV negative. And you can see that even compared to hep C positive, HIV negative, um, co-infected patients had much worse graft and patient survival. And this actually um, 
uh, was noted in the pre-DAA era. And so this led many pa uh, institutions and transplant centers to actually remove co-infected patients from their list for fear of bad outcomes, um, which for those of you who are not familiar with transplant, were highly regulated by the government. Um, and if our outcomes fall below a certain level, we can actually have our program shut down. Um, and so this really um, uh, concerned me. Um, I've had a place in my heart for this vulnerable population for some time. And so we subsequently asked the question, um, perhaps the right question is whether or not these patients actually achieve a survival benefit. And um, clearly they do. Um, this is looking at mono-infected patients, and you can see when you look at the survival curve, when it falls below one, um, that's when patients achieve a survival benefit over remaining on dialysis. And if I were to show you a curve in an uninfected population, it would look exactly the same. Where in the early uh, period post-transplant, there is an increased risk in mortality compared to staying on dialysis, and that's related to the surgical procedure itself um, and immediate surgical complications. And then you can see over time that it gets better, and they actually achieve a survival benefit. And among mono-infected patients, they actually achieve this benefit at 194 days post-transplant. When we did the same study, but we instead looked at co-infected patients, we were able to show that they too achieve a survival benefit over leaving them on dialysis. But I think it is important to note that our co-infected patients um, did not achieve that survival benefit until almost a little over a year after their transplant, really begging the question of what can we do to actually mitigate risk in this even more vulnerable population than just our mono-infected HIV patients. Again, a lot of this was done in the pre-DAA era, um, and we looked at this to see if there was something we could do. Was there a donor selection process? Was there a better HLA matching that we could do? And what we demonstrated was that there were a couple of things that we could do as transplanters to try to improve outcomes uh, among our co-infected patients. Um, and what we found was two things. One is that when I accept an organ offer, I need to make sure that I avoid high degrees of HLA mismatching among our co-infected patients. But also, um, if we could use antiviral therapy to eradicate hepatitis C, that would be really important. And now with the introduction of direct-acting antivirals, we certainly have that option. But this now has introduced a new and important question, which is do you treat these individuals pre-transplant or do you transplant them, wait for stable allograft function at 30 days, and then introduce DAA therapy? And why is that question relevant? It's relevant because patients who are infected with hepatitis C have unique access to hepatitis C positive donors. So if you treat them pre-transplant with DAA, you eliminate their access to that pool of deceased donors, and you may actually make them have to wait longer for a kidney transplant. So what is the optimal timing for hepatitis C treatment? Should you always treat pre-transplant? Does it depend on the fibrosis stage? depend on waiting time, or does it depend on both? All right, excellent. It does, it depends on both. 
Um, so here is a, a study that we did. This was using Markov modeling where we looked at pre versus post transplant hepatitis C treatment. Um, and in, and sort of to orient you to the stoplight report, if you will, um, you can see that we have this um, broken up by local waiting time in months, um, as well as their metavir stage, um, and looking at fibrosis stages zero through four. Um, and then we looked at life years, which is panel A, quality adjusted life years, which is panel B, and probably the two things that matter the most to the people in this room. And then panel C is looking at the ICERs or the incremental cost effectiveness ratios. So is it both extending life and also cost effective, which is really what payers are going to look at. Um, and what this does is it walks you through whether or not you should treat pre or post. When it is green, treating pre-transplant yields either more life years or more quality-adjusted life years. And for the ICERs, it means that it yields more quality-adjusted life years and that it also is cost-effective. Um, and so this is really, I think, a map of how to figure out what you should do for your patient. Um, because like I said, it really does keep their options open. If they haven't cleared their hep C, it does open up an additional pool of donors for them, particularly if they don't have a living donor or they're at a center with long waiting time. One important thing that needs to be considered is that our art therapies, our DAAs, and our immunosuppressants all interact, and so all of that must be considered when you start these patients on DAA therapy, and whether they're pre- or post-transplant. I won't go through this slide with you, but it's in your packet uh, should you have uh, questions about uh, how to go about doing that and what uh, interactions may be. I think it's also really interesting and somewhat counterintuitive, but when we first started doing uh, HIV kidney transplants, we noted very high acute rejection rates. You can see that at one year, the acute rejection rate for HIV patients was 31%, compared to only 12% in our general transplant population. And we really wondered why. And uh, I think one of the things that may have contributed was an overwhelming reluctance to, to utilize lymphocyte-depleting agents as part of our induction immunosuppression. And the reason for that is because in the NIH trial, when lymphocyte-depleting agents were utilized, the CD4 count plummeted, and it stayed low for a period of time and really took a very long time to recover back to baseline. And many of the patients who received um, antithymocyte globulin, or ATG, um, also developed uh, serious infections. And so this is where the reluctance was. And if you um, looked, we actually uh, used very, very few uh, lymphocytes, sorry, uh, depleting therapies. And in fact, almost 21%, or excuse me, almost 35% of the HIV patients actually received no induction immunosuppression. And it is my uh, supposition that this set them up for early uh, acute rejection episodes. Um, we studied this, and we were able to demonstrate that if you looked at patients who had HIV and risk of acute rejection within the first post-transplant year, um, you can see that patients who received ATG had a 61% lower risk for acute rejection at one year and had much better uh, graft survival when they received appropriate induction immunosuppression. Importantly, when we compared these HIV patients with uninfected patients who also received lymphocyte-depleting therapy in a matched analysis, we saw no difference in the risk for acute rejection. 
We also looked at the risk for infection, and this was utilizing some claims data. And what we demonstrated is that infection is, in fact, common. It's more than 50% in the first year after transplant, but fewer than about 10% actually had an AIDS-defining infection. We also showed that the type of induction therapy really didn't correlate with a higher risk of infection, and that actually ATG was associated with a lower risk of CMV, um, C. diff, and pneumonia. And the most common infection post-transplant in an HIV patient is a urinary tract infection, which is exactly the same as the uninfected population. We also looked at maintenance immunosuppression, and we recognized very early on the drug interactions that resulted in altered exposure to one of our most important immunosuppressants, um, known as Prograf or Tacrolimus, a CNI inhibitor. Um, and the reason for that is because um, patients on protease inhibitors did not see the same peak and trough that you typically get uh, with uh, um, tacrolimus um, and actually had much lower levels than what we would need um, and so that probably contributed as well and when we looked at antiretroviral therapy usage and risk of graft loss in the first year you can see that protease inhibitor based therapy was associated with a 1.84 increased risk of graft loss and in the first year almost a five-fold increased risk um, and so why are integrase inhibitors preferred? They're preferred uh, because they don't inter uh, uh, interfere with the cytochrome uh uh, CYP34A, um, and so they don't interfere with my maintenance immunosuppression, and so it, it makes it much easier to ensure they're appropriately immunosuppressed. And why don't we use NRTIs? Well, the most common is uh, tenofovir, and we know that that is associated uh, with kidney dysfunction. And for the sake of time, I'll move forward. Um, I think it's also important to highlight that HIV control uh, does not prevent renal uh, reinfection. And when I talk to you about HIVAN and what we can see on biopsy, it can be very confusing to distinguish between that and an actual immunologic problem. And so we do routinely perform protocol biopsies in our HIV patients. I think it's almost also important to recognize that these patients um, actually have a disparity in access to transplant. We do a great job of picking who should be listed. Their waitlist mortality is comparable to the negative candidates, but they achieve transplant at a much lower rate um, than their uninfected counterparts. This is primarily driven by a lower likelihood of achieving live donor kidney transplantation. And so again, this brings up an important question of how do we increase transplants for them? Can we increase the donor pool? Can we identify living donors for them? This brings in Elmi Muller's work, who was the first in the world to do HIV-positive to positive transplants and demonstrated that, in fact, you can achieve excellent results, um, and it's a wonderful way to expand the donor pool. Uh, we have since done this here in the United States. We did, in fact, have to amend the National Organ Transplant Act that was written in the 1980s in which it made it illegal for us to procure organs from HIV-infected individuals, um, and that is because at the time we didn't understand HIV or AIDS. We were able to overturn that with bipartisan support, um, and President Obama actually signed that into law in 2013 um, and has mandated research on HIV to HIV transplantation. Um, and we now have an ongoing uh, UO1 and HIV positive to positive kidney as well as liver transplantation. Um, for your center to participate in the HOPE Act, you do have to have IRB approval and to be registered with UNOS. 
Here's our basic algorithm for how we're trying to identify deceased donors in terms of risk of disease transmission. Hopefully, we can identify donors who end up on the lower risk of HIV superinfection and drug resistance. That, of course, is what we are worried about. Um, we actually have a hotline set up for organ procurement organizations to be able to call us to see if this, in fact, is an appropriate donor and how best to help these folks um, achieve transplant and have access to a subset of organs that only HIV positive patients can have. So with that, I will summarize um, and say that as we discussed, acute kidney injury is prevalent in HIV and a risk factor for both CKD and death. We know that HIV confirms, confers a risk of CKD that can rival that of diabetes. Uh, renal transplant is a good option for HIV-positive patients with outcomes comparable to their negative counterparts. And we also know that we need to have continued efforts uh, in order for us to realize the full potential of the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act or the HOPE Act. And with that, I will say thank you to all of my colleagues who've helped me with much of this work and be happy to answer any questions, hopefully all about transplant. <laughs> thank you. Great, thank you for that uh, review. Uh, we'll open up for questions and we'll start at the mic. Is this work? That was a great presentation. Can you talk a little bit about what we as HIV providers should be paying attention to and doing both immediately post-transplant and in the first year post-transplant? Thank you, that's a great question. Um, I think the biggest uh, things that we have um, in our patients post-transplant um, in the first 30 days, we actually um, will um, prophylax them against various opportunistic infections because we are utilizing lymphocyte depletion. So one of those is um, some sort of antifungal, typically a diflucan, uh, which interacts with our CNIs. And so when we stop that at 30 days, um, we can see a plummet in their CNI, and they're at a little bit higher risk for acute rejection in those settings. And so that's one thing. So if you're taking care of the patient and you're introducing a new medication, understanding what's going to actually impact our maintenance therapies is very important. Um, so that, that's one piece. The other is I really enjoyed um, the cognitive lecture. Um, we have a lot of trouble with adherence, and, it, and it's not because they're not trying. Um, there seems to be a really terrible interaction between HIV and cognitive decline and then piling on immunosuppressants. And so oftentimes our patients need a lot more one-on-one -on -one education. Um, and so the more that that can be reinforced in terms of medication adherence and what they're on is super critical for us. Thank you. So questions from the card. Uh, what are your thoughts in treating hep C pre-transplant as a way to decrease community hepatitis C transmission rates? So kind of a public health as a consideration. Do you use that at all in, in decision making? Um, it's an interesting question. Um, I suppose I probably should, um, but I, I will admit I tend to be very singularly focused on the individual patient before me. Um, and really, you know, as a transplanter, my goal is to try to help an individual achieve transplant as quickly as possible because I know that's the path to greater longevity compared to leaving anybody on dialysis. 
And so my advice really remains, and that is um, depending on uh, the waiting time at the center they're listed in the fibrosis stage is how I would approach treatment of hepatitis C pre uh, versus post. So this uh, writer says, recently I've seen two cases of AKI from methamphetamine and intoxication followed by vigorous exercise and rhabdomyolysis. Are these isolated cases or is this a trend that you've seen? That is a fantastic question. I don't believe those are isolated cases. Methamphetamines are terrible. Um, Outside of the HIV population, um, as many of you are probably aware of the opioid crisis in this country, one of the side effects of that has been an increase in our deceased donors. And many of these donors have died from methamphetamines. Um, and we actually see uh, much greater rates of AKI in that particular donor subset. And we have some preliminary data that we're looking at that it actually impacts long-term uh, outcomes, meaning suggesting that uh, methamphetamine use is actually quite detrimental to the kidney and ends up uh, resulting in, in, in worse graft survival for the recipient. So should all HIV patients be prescribed an ACE inhibitor to protect their kidneys? Great question. I think certainly if they have proteinuria, I think ACE inhibitors, if they can tolerate it from a blood pressure standpoint, I would highly recommend it. Um, I think if you can control the proteinuria and um, act early, you can at least potentially halt their CKD progression. Um, And as much as I'm a transplanter and love to operate, um, without question, the best kidneys you're ever going to get are the two that you're born with. So the longer you can um, preserve renal function and avoid the need both for dialysis and transplant, the better. Great. So why should a CD4 count less than 200 be an exclusion criterion for renal transplant? Another fantastic question. So I think, you know, those are the criteria um, that were developed Um, for the original NIH trial and consortia. And um, I spent a lot of time talking to Dr. Sag and our colleagues at UAB about this. Um, We we definitely have transplanted patients with CD4 counts less than 200. I think the most important and critical piece if you're going to transplant a patient is they must have a negative viral load. That is, is the absolute key. Um, I think if their CD4 count is 150, 160, I wouldn't preclude them from transplant, but they have to have a negative viral load. So how do you approach an HIV uh, end-stage renal disease patient on a PI that cannot be switched due to resistance? Are they still a candidate after transplantation? Not everyone can we get on an uh, integrase so they absolutely are still a candidate, and we certainly do that, do that at our center. I think the biggest thing to, to understand is that most transplant programs, um, it's, it can be a bit of a one-size-fits-all. Um, and I'm going to pick on surgeons for a moment since, I'm, since I am one and I can do that. Um, you know, typically in the immediate post-transplant centers, and this isn't, 100%, but the vast majority of transplant centers, that patient resides on the surgical service, and the surgical service is the one that's dictating both induction therapy as well as maintenance immunosuppression. 
And so I just think it's really important to understand that if you have a patient that cannot be converted to an integrase inhibitor, it may be worthwhile to either consider referring them to a transplant center that's involved in the HOPE Act, because there's only 17 of us out of 280-something centers in the U.S. And the reason I say that is because that's a center that's going to be really focused on it, that understands PIs, understands how they interact, and will have a system and a protocol for running TAC levels higher so that the patient can achieve uh, appropriate levels. But it really requires coordinated care with a very invested transplant service or tremendous oversight over the surgical service. Great. We can uh, retire three cards with this question. Okay. So, uh, and this is about the safety of TAF versus TDF, and what is your experience using TAF post-transplant? I, I have limited experience using TAF post-transplant. Um, in theory, it should be better, um, but, but limited experience with that. All right, how can I best advocate for patients who are facing non-evidence-based criteria from a transplant team? Non-evidence-based criteria. Yeah, I, I, I think the gist of this may be, so for example, CD4 greater than 500, um, diabetes under control. It just Meaning they, they're not meeting those criteria. It, it sounds like the question is really maybe having trouble with the transplant team in terms of maybe dealing with an HIV-positive person. Maybe we can just spin that question to talk yeah. about kind of the acceptance of HIV-positive persons for transplant and how that's evolved. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely has been a slow evolution, and I think, um, I think there are still tremendous biases that exist, um, and that may be a little bit of what you're fighting. Um, and it may be worthwhile to engage um, a colleague at another more aggressive center that could help with that discussion or maybe even referring your patient to another centers. Um, patients can multi-list and that might be the easier uh, option to send them to a more aggressive center that's comfortable taking care of HIV patients. Great. This has definitely improved over time. Yeah, for sure. A question at the mic. Uh, you prefer treatment of hepatitis C after transplant. Um, are the duration of uh, hep C therapies the same? Is SVR uh, equivalent? And is there a higher rate of relapse? Sorry, echoed. I can't. So af after transplant, are the durations of treatment the same? Uh, you're, you're treating an immunocompromised person now. Yes. You would use DAA therapy exactly post-transplant, just like you would pre. The only caveat, I think, is that you want to make sure that their renal function has stabilized. So I would not recommend treating them in the first 30 days. In general, we will refer our patients at the three-month mark for treatment with DAA therapy if they came to transplant also infected with hepatitis C. At that point, they tend to have much more stable allograft function, um, and, and it makes it a lot easier. Here's a question about a post-transplant patient, and uh, they're obviously on immunosuppressive drugs. Do we blanketly offer OI prophylaxis when the CD4 counts dip below 200 and or 15 percent? Yeah, so, the, so we have, in general, we know when we lymphocyte deplete them, they're going to fall below 200, and so we do, in fact, prophylax. So we 
we use Valcite for CMV, Bactrim for PCP. We typically have them on some sort of antifungal as well as azithro to prophylax against um, um, atypicals. Um, and we will follow their CD4 count. And if it takes them a little bit longer to rebound, we will extend that prophylaxis beyond the typical sort of one month period. Our last question here, uh, it talks about the use of I'm gonna, the boosted elvitegravir with uh, uh, TAF and FTC, we're not supposed to use brand names, uh, and its use in dialysis patients. Have you had any experience with that? I have not. I'd have to defer to one of my nephrology colleagues on that. As we mentioned yesterday, it has been studied. It has, yeah. Any other questions? Great. Well, thank you very thank much. You. Wonderful.